We serve a God who loves story. Um, I don't know if you've ever noticed that. If you've read through the pages of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, just, you know, replete with stories. And he's left us with stories, with drama. We've talked about it already this morning, uh, what baptism means, what, what the communion table means. Stories, reenactments, calling us to attend to the significant things in life. And he loves the story of what he's doing in you. He loves that story. He loves to hear you tell it because it is a powerful story which is another evidence of how God is at work in our lives. Um, maybe you say, God's at work in my life. What are you talking about? Maybe, maybe you're here, you're a guest among us uh, this morning, and, and maybe this whole kind of Christianity thing, uh, or you've been kicking the tires of faith, maybe even since Easter it raised questions, and you're saying, I'm, I'm trying to understand this a little bit better. Um, Jesus has been pursuing you. Jesus makes a couple of extraordinary statements in the Gospels. To his disciples, he said, I will be with you always, even to the ends of the earth. But to those who came seeking spiritual truth and understanding, he said, you wouldn't have even been asking the questions had I not made it possible for you to come and pursue me. You're coming because the Father's enabled us. And so I can say without our confidence that you're here this morning because God, has been in, God is in pursuit of you and he's inviting you to, he's inviting you to attend to his, his presence around you, his voice calling you, and encounter that he has already begun with you. If you've been a follower of Jesus for, for a while, um, maybe it's true of you that I, that I know is true of many of us. And, and that story of encounter, that how Jesus intercepted my life, is actually such a precious and profound story you can hardly recount it without tears. Because it's a powerful story. It, and it becomes one of many evidences to the truthfulness of Jesus. The truthfulness of that first Easter weekend, we, we began last Sunday looking at uh, the evidence concerning the resurrection of Jesus. And we began by looking at a couple named Andronicus and Junia, who were first century followers of Jesus. They're called apostles, meaning that they saw Jesus. And they lived in an era, the first 50 years of the church or so, when churches were popping up all around the Mediterranean all because of the story of the resurrection of Jesus. And they were convinced that it was not fictitious, it was real, and they needed to respond to it. These are in the days before the New Testament as we know it had been written, before it had been gathered. So powerful was the evidence of the resurrection that hundreds of thousands of people in that first century believed in Jesus and turned to the Lord. That story continues to be profoundly told through individuals like you and me. I loved what Sam said earlier. I heard you chuckling, and appropriately so, when Sam said, look, I'm an average Sam. I'm vanilla through and through. And we would say, that's, like, that's, that's my story. Like, I'm just an average Joe. I'm an average Terry, an average Mike. You know what? I mean, we're just, we're not anybody particularly special and yet, God loves us and is in pursuit of us. I want to introduce you to somebody else this morning um, who has a very ordinary vanilla kind of story. Um, he's a, an ordinary Sam. Well, his name's actually Peter. And Peter 
was this ordinary guy. He was a blue-collar worker. He was a fisherman on the Sea of Galilee. Um, Ordinary very much like you and I, and yet when Jesus encountered him, gradually radical change began to take place in his life. His brother Andrew had been following a guy named John the Baptist, or John the Baptizer. He made quite a stir in the first century. But when John, with some of his disciples, saw Jesus, he pointed to Jesus in the presence of his disciples, John's disciples, and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Well, Andrew decided, I want to hang out with this guy that John, whom I admire, says is the deal. I need to follow, I need to get to know him. Andrew took a buddy named John, different John, John the Baptist, young John who would become John the Apostle ultimately, took him with him and they started hanging out with Jesus. And the first thing Andrew did was he went looking for his brother Peter and said, look, you need to come and see what's going on here. I think we found the Messiah. And sure enough, Peter joined them, uh, as did John's older brother James. Turns out they've all been partners in some kind of fishing enterprise. Uh, James and John had a boat. Peter and Andrew had a boat, and they fished for their livelihood on the Sea of Galilee. We call it Sea of Galilee. It's actually a freshwater lake, um, also known as Lake Tiberias, Lake Gennesaret. Same place, all different ways that it would be referred to in that time. Here's what I want to do this morning. I want to to introduce you to four sort of snapshots of Peter's life, which introduce us to who and, and what he was and then became. As, as part of seeing that the evidence of, of a life being changed, the evidence of a life being transformed, is a profound thing. And in particular, I want to I challenge you to live out the testimony of how Jesus has been intercepting your life and the kind of changes that he has been working in you. Peter had been hanging out with Jesus. Um, he was likely present for the turning of the water into wine incident referenced in John, the Gospel of John. He definitely was present when um, Jesus healed uh, Peter and Andrew's mom in Capernaum. What seems to have happened is, when you kind of put the composite of the Gospels together, is that they'd gone out and were hanging out with Jesus, and then they'd gone back and they'd do a bit of fishing, and then they'd hang out with Jesus a little bit more, until the incident that we're going to read about in Luke chapter 5, when Jesus kind of seconded Peter's boat and used it as a bit of a pulpit um, platform from which to preach to the crowd that had gathered. Um, I mean, it was a handy thing. The crowd was kind of pushing them toward the the, the water's edge. Um, The water would actually provide a bit of natural amplification, kind of allow his voice to project over this, you know, to this, this gathering crowd. But I suspect that there was also a bit of design on Jesus' part, to get a little closer to Peter because he knew, he knew that that if Peter would surrender his life to the master, Jesus would do extraordinary things through him. So let's stand together. Um, You're welcome to follow along uh, as I read. I'm in the New International Version, Luke chapter 5. I'm just going to read the first 11 verses of uh, this account. Um, This is the word of the Lord. One day as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, or Sea of Galilee, the people were crowded, crowding around him and listening to the word of God. He saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from shore. 
Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled to partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. For he and his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid. From now on, you will fish for people. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. This is the word of the Lord. May he help us understand it and live in light of it this morning. You may be seated. Since I was a kid, every time I read that story, the first question that comes to mind, what happened to the fish? <laughs> yeah, I, apparently that day was catch and release. Um, you know, I mean, maybe there were some other partners there that came along and Captain Heinleiner kind of did the, the fish processing. It doesn't tell us. I don't, I don't, know, I don't know what happened, but I've always, I've always wondered about that. Um, here's how Peter saw himself. I'm sure you caught it there. He's been hanging out with Jesus long enough, have a sense of what this man's teaching was about, and his, he realizes, you are holy, and I am not. And, and his response to that is, I'm a sinful man. Someone has said that knowing the truth about yourself is the starting point for meaningful change in your life. I'll come back to this in a minute. Let me paint a little fuller picture of Peter first. Here's a picture of a period fishing boat that was found preserved in the mud and the silt at the bottom of the Sea of Galilee. You can see you know, some of its construction there, but that's from you know, first century. I've got a second picture here that gives you a little bit of idea of scale and size. Um, you can see the people standing on the back of uh, that boat. It's a, it's a pretty big, pretty big vessel. Um, that's typical of the kinds of craft that were used to ply the waters of the Sea of Galilee uh, and fish. It was a, a significant enterprise in that day. Lots of people made their living um, providing for the food needs of their communities. Um, if you're prone to be a skeptic, um, we have some historic verifications. I said last week that I would attempt to take the posture of a skeptic through this series um, and uh, try to apply questions to the biblical record uh, that, that would attempt to you know, dig a little deeper. Uh, one of them would be just historic archaeological findings like this. would say, well, here's certainly evidence of the nature of you know, the enterprise that was taking place around the Sea of Galilee. It, it kind of speaks in agreement with what we find in places in Scripture. But the fact of the matter is that when you're trying to you know, figure out more about the lives of you know, the, the, the disciples of Jesus, uh, the Apostle Peter in particular, um, beyond the pages of Scripture, there's not a lot of help. Um, the writers of uh, the non-Christian writers had really no interest in this part of the story, so it's not too surprising that you don't find things like that in Sosthenes or, you know, Josephus very much or that kind of thing. Some of these non-Christian historical writers. What we do find are that the church fathers make significant reference to the apostles, making reference to the fact that that they. They, in many cases, were followers of these apostles. I knew John. I knew Peter. I knew Paul and would be able to... So these are this next generation after the, the first generation of Christians, the disciples and those who immediately followed him. Um, and we have writings that 
remain from them. So just a quick introduction to some of these guys that we refer to as the early church fathers. Papias uh, was born in AD 60, uh, died in 135. Uh, so he kind of crossed over with the lives of, of some of the people we're describing. He was bishop of Hierapolis, um, which is now in, in modern-day Turkey. Um, he was a disciple of John. Um, followed John around. Uh, St. Clement of Rome died in 101. We think the Apostle John died about 100 AD. Um, so you can kind of see the convergence there. But, but St. Clement was uh, a disciple of Peter and of Paul. He knew them personally. Um, the Roman Catholic Church considers uh, St. Clement to be uh, the first pope, AD 91 to 101. Another writer, Irenaeus, uh, lived 120 to 202. Um, so he was a bishop of Lyon, which is in France, um, and he wrote substantially on issues of theology, of issues of historicity, of a generation that had preceded him. Um, Clement of Alexandria, um, Alexandria being on the north of Africa, uh, lived 153 to 217, uh, eminent Greek theologian. He was a hymn hymnologist as well, wrote some hymns for the early church. Um, Hippolytus, uh, 170 to 236, an author of theological works. And each of these guys would make reference to the apostles, reference to their teaching, would quote New Testament passages or letters from the letters that hadn't yet been gathered together as the New Testament, but they're quoting from those letters. It helps us understand what was being said and verify uh, what was being said. Tertullian, 145 to 221, he was a Latin-speaking French or, or African theologian, lived in, in North Africa. Origen, 185 to 253. Uh, so when you Here's people talk about the early church fathers. These are some of the people that they're talking about. The latest of those would probably be St. Jerome, 342 to 421, an Italian scholar translator. They all help us paint a little broader picture of, uh, of the first century. Now, the skeptic would say, yeah, but they're Christians. How can we really trust what they have to say? Surely their, their perspective was biased. And we could say, perhaps... And yet they have a perspective, and yet they bring historical veracity to um, the fact that these men lived, the fact that they taught, uh, they counter-reference you know, points of scripture, and all of that is helpful to us and increases our sense of confidence that uh, we're following truth. Uh, the events of Easter Sunday actually happened, uh, that Jesus was and is who he said he is. And this becomes one of the evidences that invites you and I and those around us to consider once again uh, the claims of Jesus. Peter, self-assessment early in the conversation with Jesus, I'm a sinful man, but by the time that he'd been with Jesus for a couple of years and uh, his understanding of, of Jesus began to grow substantially, and we get to Matthew chapter 16, actually this is an account that's told Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all the gospel writers reference it, um, but his confession at this point in time, after having been with Jesus a year and a half, maybe two years, something like that, is you are the Christ, and that confession gets him a new name. Um, let me, I'll read from Matthew's account. It's a little, uh, got a little more detail in it. Uh, Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, so this is just north of the Sea of Galilee. You can go there today. It's an extraordinary space to visit. When Jesus came to the region of, of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do you say the Son of Man is? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But what about you, Jesus asked, who do you say I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are 
Peter. So here's the name change. So Simon, uh, Cephas, now Peter is the name that gets attached to him. Petros, which means rock, has the idea of stability. He says, on this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. Now, this idea that Jesus was the Messiah was not new. As you read through these earlier pages of Scripture, it becomes evident uh, that, that there's, this is the point that's being made in the Gospels. But this becomes the first clear confession of that. And Peter has been, he's been watching Jesus teach. He's been present for the teaching. He's been present in the public settings. He's been present in the private settings as Jesus would teach. He's seen Jesus work miracles. And there's this growing recognition. This is no mere man that we are with and, and when put to it point blank, he's got to say, you are the Messiah. You are the son of the living God. Now this leads to kind of the third incident or the third scene that we can go to. Um, kind of another snapshot of Peter's life. In fact, it, it's, it's almost appropriate to refer to it as a selfie. Because um, I'm going to draw from the Gospel of Mark. Gospel of Mark um, typically is, is, is believed to have been written in Rome by Mark, but on the testimony of Peter. Uh, the Peter was, some have even referred to it, so you might, might even call it the Gospel of Peter, because it is, uh, by and large, his recollections. Mark, as far as we know, was not present uh, with Jesus and, the, and company. Maybe one cryptic reference toward the end of his Gospel that might, maybe is Mark, uh, but we don't know for sure. But, but certainly there is this historical evidence, the early church fathers believed that Peter um, gave Mark the information and Mark wrote this gospel for us. So in this sense, let's look at the selfie of Peter, what he's saying about himself. This one maybe not so, so glamorous. Uh, kind of appropriate for selfies. My nose is always too big and I'm close to the camera. But anyway, so maybe that's what it is. Mark chapter 14, verse 26. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Uh, you will all fall away. I forgot to tell you what the word is. It's in your sermon notes, but even if Everyone else deserts you, I never will. That's the third statement. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. You will all fall away, Jesus told them, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. He's quoting Zechariah 13 there. I will strike the sheep and the shepherd, the sheep, shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. And Peter declared, even if all fall away, I will not. Truly I tell you, Jesus answered, today, yes, tonight, before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. But Peter insisted emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And the other disciples said the same. So of course, despite Peter's good intentions, and the good intentions of each of the twelve, they all abandoned Jesus at first. Peter and John came back to kind of trail along behind the group of soldiers that had arrested Jesus and were taking him away for trial. And they stayed at a distance. And that's, you know, kind of what led then to the instance where Peter's tragic and famous denial of Jesus. And indeed, just as Jesus said, three, three times. This has got to be, it's got to be the most devastating. And yet... At the same time, most encouraging um, passage of Scripture um, that, that, I can, that I've found. Um, it, it's devastating in this. Um, the, the beginning of the problem is that Jesus, Jesus, uh, Peter corrected Jesus. 
Uh, Peter declared that Jesus had gotten it wrong. No, Lord, you've got it wrong. You don't have this one right. Um, uh, and, and this is the first time that this has happened, at least in the, the narrative as we are following along. See, the first time, he got it right. Um, I'm a sinful man. And Jesus would hear that, and he would say, yeah, Peter, your sin has separated you from Father God, and, and there is, you, you need someone to stand in the gap for you. Ultimately, Jesus would be the one to do that. And, and in the second scene, the second incident, um, Jesus was agreeing with Peter. Peter was agreeing with what Jesus had revealed. Um, you are the Christ that came after him Lingering with Jesus and hearing his teaching and seeing his miracles and respond. And so Peter, Jesus would say, yeah, Peter, you got it right there. That is true. Um, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. You got it right. Two for two. Way to go, Peter. But this third scene, uh, Jesus was telling them what was about to happen. And for some reason, we don't, the text doesn't tell us why, uh, Peter, Peter counters Jesus with this assertion that he's got it wrong. Like, no, Lord, this can't be. This is not the plan. And Jesus would respond and say, actually, Peter, I know what I'm talking about. This is the plan. It is the best plan. In fact, you couldn't have imagined a better plan. But Peter would counter and say, no, Lord, it can't be this way. And I think one of the reasons why I consider this to be such a tragic passage is I find myself in here, and I suspect you do too, Lord, it can't be this way. This is not the plan. Lord, let, let me tell you why. I shouldn't have lost my job there. That was not a good idea. Lord, Lord, let me tell you why this sickness cannot bring glory to you. God, let me, let me make it clear here that that death should not have happened. That can't possibly bring glory to you. That's not the plan. Change the plan. Fix this because I'm not happy with what's going on here. Surely, surely, you're not getting this right. My marriage wasn't supposed to turn out this way. We, we, we can move from the highly circumstantial. And if you really want to have some fun, try telling Jesus what you think of his moral expectations. Lord, those are unreasonable moral expectations. Who in this society should possibly have to live like that? I mean, we're inclined to tell him why his teachings are too narrow and why it is that they should be modified in light of current culture. This is one of the most devastating passages of Scripture because it suggests that what should come next would be Jesus' rejection of Peter. I mean, surely someone who in his face says, no, that's not okay, that's not the way it's going to happen, and then turns around and demonstrates that, yeah, actually, he was right. Surely there's no place left for someone like that. And yet that's not the case. There's an extraordinary ex extending of grace and it came after the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus had said, uh, we read it there a minute ago, I'm going to go before you to, see, to the Galilee, region of Galilee. Meet me there, effectively, was what he was saying. Maybe that was why they were on the, 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 the lake, you know, bored, waiting for Jesus, not sure when's this going to happen. Let's go fishing. But they're back in the boat again, and they're out on the lake and it's been another one of those evenings where nothing happened. One of those early morning starts where the, the fish didn't bite, the fish didn't come into the net. And then they see the guy on the shore who calls out and says, how's the fishing? 
And they respond back and say, haven't caught anything. And he's like, throw your net on the right side of the boat. Okay, why not? You know, throw it one more time, you know. And all of a sudden, the net's full of fish. It's kind of interesting that John tells us that it, it didn't break. Uh, there, there was no sign of fracturing the net this time. Um, but John is the first to say, oh my goodness, that's the Lord. And then Peter. The last time Peter jumped out of the boat to the Lord, he walked on water. Then he got wet. This time he got wet right away. <laughs> but, no, see, this was not... This was not the first time that Peter had encountered the resurrected Lord, his resurrected Lord and Savior. Um, at least twice he was present for those encounters. Now it doesn't record for us. The scriptures, the gospels don't tell us whether there was any exchange. My suspicion is he was lurking in the shadows. He was kind of staying out of the way because there was a lot of guilt going on. There was a lot of shame going on. I made this bold pronouncement for you and then I demonstrated that not a lot's changed since I first recognized that you, that I was a sinful man. And I suspect that that's part of the reason why this miracle was such a profound miracle for Peter. Maybe of making for him exclusively because once again, no fish, throw at your nets. The nets are overflowing uh, and all of a sudden, Peter's back to that original, yeah. It is true that you are holy, and I am not. But there's been a lot, there's been a lot of water under the bridge from this point in time to here and now. Because things have changed. And rather than saying, away from me, I'm a, a sinful man, Peter's running for Jesus. And one of the most beautiful things that takes place, I think the numbers are, are supposed to be significant here for us. Peter denied Jesus three times. The number three in the scriptures often refer to completeness. So I think we can understand it as a complete denial, complete rejection. I got nothing to do with them. Jesus gives Peter the opportunity to, to rewind. And so it's three opportunities to confess Christ, three opportunities to own his mistake, three opportunities to receive forgiveness, three opportunities to receive a new and fresh commission. You see, where we would, on the devastating part of this story, we would say, surely God's done with him. God would say, Jesus would say, no. Peter, feed my sheep. Care for my lambs. I've got a commission for you, Peter. I've got an assignment for you. And yes, you're going to make some mistakes. But if you will walk with me, I will bring about the results that I intend to bring about. The fourth sort of snapshot, we've got, away from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. You are the Messiah. I'll never abandon you, Lord. Um, the fourth snapshot comes actually in the book of Acts. What, what's, the, what's the trajectory of Peter's life? What is the, the, the change that's taken place? And we begin to see that in Acts chapter 4, verse 13. It becomes evident that, Jesus, that Peter has been with Jesus. This is only a few weeks, at the most a few months, after that scene on the shore of the Sea of, uh, of Galilee. And we read uh, uh, they healed somebody and everybody got up in arms about it. And uh, I forget whether it was on the Sabbath or not, but um, they were in trouble. They were before the leaders and being called on account, effectively had been arrested. Um, and, and here's what they say, Acts chapter 4, verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel. 
It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone the builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. It's quoting Psalm 18 there. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. When they saw the courage of Peter and John, a little different than the last time, in the Garden of Gethsemane, different, different count, they didn't run this time. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, kind of vanilla, they were astonished and they took note of these, that these men had been with Jesus. Who have you been with? Who are you hanging out with? And, and is, is the likeness of that person coming through in who you are and who you're becoming? These men had been with Jesus. And Peter's story begins to show the power of God to bring about change in a person's life. Your story does too. If you're a follower of Jesus, no matter how faltering your steps may have been, he longs to meet with you and to live through you and to bring evidence that you've been with Jesus. And, and, and what's resulting is change. What's resulting is a difference in, in the way you're approaching life, the way you're handling challenges, the way you're addressing uh, the values and priorities of this world, even the way that you're handling your failures. Sam and Blanche's story shows off the power of Jesus. Peter's show, story shows off the power of Jesus. What's your story? What's your story showing? Peter was so substantially changed that the church fathers tell us that when he was martyred, he insisted that he be crucified upside down because he was unworthy to die in the same manner as his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's evidence of change. In fact, it's another evidence that we won't go into today. Every one of the disciples of Jesus were tortured. Uh, most of them were murdered because of their testimony of Jesus, and none of them changed the story. Not, the truth is the truth is the truth. I can only say what I saw, what I've experienced, including the change that has worked in my life. And never again would Peter deny his Lord. 